From New York's Hudson River Valley, I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650. Read 650 celebrates writers and the spoken word, five minutes and 650 words at a time. And on today's show, we present excerpts from a live event entitled Haunted, featuring true stories of premonitions, superstitions, and apparitions from writers Corinne O'Shaughnessy, Sharon Foreman, and me. Asking Jimmy for a divorce had shattered us both. He followed me everywhere, demanding we stay together. 10.30 at night, and the house is quiet. Yet now, in the silence of my home, I wonder if I, too, have begun to detect the echoes of distant heartbeats. I wonder if I believe in ghosts. And what she finally said at midnight beneath that full moon has haunted me my entire adult life. While still holding my hand, her green eyes locked on mine, the fortune and the futures the woman foretold landed like a curse. And on today's Between the Lines segment, writer David Masello describes the virtues of an old-fashioned way of communicating that will never go out of style. I still write postcards. I tell students I teach, and I also tell myself repeatedly that what you write in a postcard to someone is something you will not say in person or write in an email or a text or say on the phone. That's all just ahead on Read 650. Halloween has been around for more than a thousand years, and its origins can be traced back to an ancient Celtic festival, during which it was believed that the souls of the dead returned to their homes. Writer Corinne O'Shaughnessy had an experience that falls squarely within this category, and for our special haunted event, she traveled from her home in Mexico to our stage at the Ossie Davis Theater in New Rochelle, New York, to share her story. This is Corinne O'Shaughnessy reading five. Asking Jimmy for a divorce had shattered us both. He followed me everywhere, demanding we stay together. Sometimes I'd wake up to find him sitting next to the bed, just staring at me, hunting me. But what haunted me most after Jim passed away, succumbing to his own addictions, was that he had died alone surrounded by his three cats. No one should go that way. And then I inherited those cats. I am not a cat person. I just figured it was a way for Jim to keep messing with me. One cat named Five after the sewage treatment tank Jimmy had rescued him from had the same beautiful hazel eyes and white hair as Jimmy did. And much like Jimmy's aversion to change, Five struggled to get comfortable in his new home. For weeks, he hid under my son's bed. Then he started to, well, stalk me. Every morning, I'd find him sitting outside my bedroom door. He'd stare a good morning. And when I'd head to the kitchen to make coffee, he'd follow me batting at my legs until I stopped to pet him. When I tried to move on, he'd chase me, batting at me again, demanding more. After a while, Five started pissing on my walls. 
Tests revealed he had a thickened bladder lining, a chronic condition. He was prescribed buprenorphine, ironically, the last opiate Jimmy was on. Unlike Jimmy, though, Five lived fairly comfortably on his pain medication until his kidneys started to fail. My son and I drew solace from holding his paws and stroking his fur as the vet gave him his final injection. Days after Five's death, I was bartending at a holiday party at the university where I worked. A gentleman with an Eastern European accent ordered a glass of wine, then asked if I was wearing contacts or were those my real eyes. We bantered a bit and I laughed as he walked off. Sometime later, he returned and I thought he wanted a refill, but instead he said, I'm having a hard time reading you. I think you're a Virgo, but maybe a Libra. I was a little stunned. I'm a Virgo on the cusp of Libra. Have you ever seen the movie The Sixth Sense? Yes, I said, opening to Stella Artois. A long time ago. I don't remember it well. I have abilities like the boy, he said. Not the same, but similar. I've had them since I was a child. I was born in a graveyard. I desperately wanted to know this, his birth story, but as I was opening a bottle of Prosecco, all I said was, that must have been very difficult for you. <laughs> and when I looked up again, he had moved on to joking with his colleagues. When he did return for a refill, the party was starting to wind down. There's light over your head, he said. I see the letters JM. Did you lose someone with the initials JM? No, I said, avoiding his eyes and scanning the bar for white wine bottles that needed to be shoved back into ice. No one. Jim's last name was Boyle. I'm hearing, I miss you, I love you, he said. It's J, maybe GM. GM. Jim. My brain waves started to feel like they were traveling through mud. My husband died two years ago, I said, the mud thickening. His name was Jim. I didn't explain that we were no longer husband and wife and that he had died alone, leaving me brutally heartsick. Did he tap you a lot? I'm getting tapped, lots of tapping. No, he didn't tap me but I didn't tell him that five did. Every morning after I opened my door, batting at my legs until I stopped to pet him. Corinne O'Shaughnessy is a retired New York City public school literacy teacher whose essays have been published in Herstory, the Dead Mule School of Southern Literature, and DorothyParkersAshes.com, among others. Her fiction has been published in SurvivorLit.org and BookOfMatchesLit.com, and she's been a resident of the Malay Colony, a multidisciplinary artist colony nestled against the Berkshire foothills. Corinne currently resides in Mexico, where she's trying to learn Spanish and figure out the intricacies of salsa dancing. 
Have you ever been to some seemingly innocuous place that, for no apparent reason, gives you the creeps? Writer Sharon Foreman has, and it prompted her to finally dig beneath the surface, metaphorically speaking, to find out why. Here's Sharon Foreman reading her true story, Ghosts at the Costco. 10.30 at night, and the house is quiet. At his desk, my husband, a cardiologist, studies a stack of electrocardiograms, his pens circling suspicious troughs and peaks, the steady or interrupted drumming of another heartbeat. I fight off sudden chills. I'm a practical woman and a rabbi who does not waste energy worrying about what comes after this life. Yet now, in the silence of my home, I wonder if I too have begun to detect the echoes of distant heartbeats. I wonder if I believe in ghosts. Until that day, over a decade ago, I'd never been able to explain the dread that overtakes me whenever I approach our local Costco, an innocuous giant box store with gray cement walls and abundant towers of triple fudge brownie mix. But before I even get out of my car, a magnetic tug propels me to flee. That winter morning, I was determined to conquer any disturbing sensations and restock our pantry with enough frozen waffles to open my own pancake house. But as soon as I entered the cavernous warehouse, it began again. My hands tingled with electric shocks when I grasped the shopping cart. An inexplicable sadness settled over me. My chest throbbed as if I needed to nurse a hungry infant. Was I experiencing an anxiety attack? Was I losing my mind? By the time I returned home, my heart ached so much I could hardly breathe. I swallowed two of the 1,200 ibuprofen tablets I had just purchased <laughs> and turned to my computer. Maybe Facebook would distract my racing thoughts. Coincidentally, a friend had just posted about another Costco, praising that store's expansive kosher selections. I commented sourly, does anyone else feel ill at the Costco in Westchester? Later that night, I returned to Facebook and read a stranger's startling response. I never go to that Westchester Costco because of all that business with the Jewish cemetery. About four seconds of detective work on the computer unspooled the mystery. For 100 years, a synagogue and its cemetery overlooked the Yonkers Hill, where the Costco now stands. Unable to afford the cemetery upkeep, the few elderly surviving members gave their land to developers, but only in exchange for a promise that the cemetery's inhabitants, including 147 children, would be reburied in Jerusalem. A recent investigation had revealed that the remains of only 12 could be accounted for in Israel. The balance on that Costco receipt 
included 135 dead Jewish children's remains lying beneath the concrete floor where I had just pushed my shopping cart. I close my laptop and sit down on the couch to fold the laundry, still warm from the dryer. My hands fold and crease, flattening my son's pants, reuniting my daughter's pink socks. If only my mind could be smoothed so easily. But I cannot stop thinking about those children. Perhaps I sense their presence because I'm so attuned to the past, to the ways it persists into the present. As a Jew, I am commanded to remember Sabbaths, festivals, tyrants, covenants, commandments. All are supposed to be engraved in memory, a heavy habit passed through generations, as enduring as the physical attributes we inherit a widow's peak, long toes, an allergy to the bumpy skin of strawberries. Who or what remembered me as I stood on that old sacred ground? After millions of years on this planet, I suppose we are all walking over the bones of each other, yet it's only the souls of these stricken children who call to me, whose presence on that windy hill triggers my restless heartbeat. I wish I knew how to honor them, these long dead children, whose mothers surely love them as fiercely as I love mine. But I can only murmur the words my people have always uttered in the face of loss, the blessing recited upon hearing of a death. Baruch Dayan Ha'emet, blessed is the true judge. Raised in Norfolk, Virginia, Sharon Foreman is a reform rabbi who's worked for 24 years in the field of Jewish education. She's the author of Honest Answers to Your Child's Jewish Questions and, most recently, The Baseball Haggadah, a festival of freedom and springtime in 15 innings. Sharon has written for Mothers Always Write, Kveller, Mama Lode, Literary Mama, and The Bitter Southerner and she lives with her husband and three children in Westchester County, New York, where she teaches bar and bat mitzvah students. Here's writer and frequent Read 650 contributor Carrie Pattison introducing my contribution to our haunted event. Edward McCann is an award-winning writer and producer and the founder and editor of Read 650, celebrating writers and the spoken word with live events, publications, and a weekly podcast. Today, Ed time travels back to a teenaged summer night in Brooklyn and an encounter with a mysterious woman beneath a full moon. Please give a warm welcome back to Ed McCann with The Fortune Teller's Curse. Thank you. Thank you. It was a hot summer Friday night in Brooklyn and I was 17 years old. My girlfriend Donna and I had just worked the closing shift at Wallbaum Supermarket. After counting our tills, we ditched our name tags and smocks, punched out, and walked over to the Carvel ice cream store where our friend Harold was closing up. The three of us then walked up Pennsylvania Avenue toward the Belt Parkway where a street fair had suddenly materialized with rides, 
games, and food trucks. We could see the lights of a Ferris wheel winking between the apartment towers, while above Jamaica Bay, thin clouds scudded across a full moon. From blocks away, we could hear the thumping beat of the music and could smell grilled sausage, fried dough, and marijuana. With my girlfriend on my arm and a pocket full of payday, I arrived at the entrance gate with a vague sense of foreboding. Once inside, Harold met up with his girlfriend Debbie and we explored the carnival, cruising past kettle corn, hot dog, and cotton candy vendors. After eating sausage and pepper heroes, we waited in line for a ride on a giant whirling centrifuge filled with screaming human beings. Our backs pinned to the wall as it spun and lifted us into the air while the floor beneath us fell away. Later on shaky legs, we watched a man make balloon animals and tried to ignore carnival barkers touting giant stuffed animals and cash prizes. But one game seemed too tempting and too easy to win. The smiling, smoking carny stood behind a line of duct tape on the blacktop, tossing thin wooden rings onto the necks of beer bottles set in a bowling pin formation. Here, the man said, try around for free. The three rings were smooth and polished, about the diameter of a donut. I missed my first shot, but with a gentle underhand toss, I landed the second two as my friends cheered. His double or nothing game went like this. I'd pay $20 to toss three rings. If I landed one on the center bottle, I'd win $40. If I missed, my next try would cost 40, but enable me to win 80. A minute later, I was out 80 bucks. <laughs> Embarrassed and enraged, I then traded $160, the rest of my week's pay, for another try. The wooden rings clinked and bounced away. But for another 320, I could win 640. Yes, the carny would wait, and so I ran. I ran six blocks to an ATM machine. Sweaty and breathless, I stared at the paltry bank balance displayed on that cathode ray screen, absorbing the full weight of what a sucker I had been. I was a mark, a dupe, a dope. I left what little money I still had in the bank. Deflated, I returned to the carnival to tell Mr. Double or Nothing that we were done and then I walked away with my friends. But as we approached the exit, I locked eyes with a heavily made-up woman seated inside an illuminated booth. She wore a fringed headscarf, large hoop earrings, many bangles on her wrists, and several strings of beads around her neck. Humiliated by my recent defeat, I felt powerless to resist when she beckoned with one long red fingernail, <laughs> offering to tell my fortune. Already falling under her spell, I gave the woman my last five dollars. She took my hands in hers, then lightly and seductively traced the lines of my palm with those long red nails. She stopped twice to study my face, then stared, trance-like, through me and beyond me. And what she finally said at midnight beneath that full moon has haunted me my entire adult life. While still holding my hand, her green eyes locked on mine. The fortune 
and the future the woman foretold landed like a curse. You will never be rich, she said, but you'll never be poor. You will always have just enough to get by. Our executive producer is Richard Kolath. I'm your host and Read 650's founder and executive editor. Our editorial team includes Stephen Lewis, David Masello, and Lisa Donati Mayer. Our chief technology officer is Sarah Caldwell. Our announcer is Fran Tuno. And our show was produced with generous assistance and good humor from Jim Rusick. If you like this show and want to hear others, follow us on your favorite podcast app. You'll be able to catch up on episodes you may have missed, like siblings or dog stories and you'll get new ones delivered directly to you. Coming up right after the break, it's David Masello with Between the Lines. Stay with us. Support for Read 650 comes from the New Rochelle Council on the Arts. Created by the New Rochelle City Council to stimulate and encourage the study and presentation of the performing and fine arts. For nearly 50 years, NERCA has worked to fulfill its mission by sponsoring art exhibitions, public art, theatrical productions, dance recitals, film screenings, lectures, and concert series. Learn more and see event schedules at newrochellearts.org. In all of human history, there have never been more or easier ways to communicate with the people we care about most than there are right now. But there is one way to translate your thoughts or emotions and share a part of yourself that's been with us for generations and that's not yet gone out of style. This is writer David Masello with a postcard on postcards. I still write postcards. I tell students I teach and I also tell myself repeatedly that what you write in a postcard to someone is something you will not say in person or write in an email or a text or say on the phone. Some other message gets conveyed, and it is often one that has more meaning that gets conveyed in any other format. A postcard affords you little room, and so what you say has to fit in that space. You have to use language that conveys a lot fast. Constraint of space makes you more expansive. I simply sit down with a card, whether I'm traveling or even if I'm in my own home, and write what first comes to me, what I first observe. And often, that simple observation results later in a finished poem or essay or even a one-act play, my favorite forms of writing. My postcards are far less about the image on the reverse and more about the image in my mind that I wish to convey to a friend or an elderly aunt, or someone I might love or wish would love me. It's akin to playing with a Ouija board piece, in that to write a postcard, you need to go completely slack. Don't think, don't strategize, don't force your way to profundity. Just let your pen fill in the small space, remain honest, use language that's right there in your head, and you will express something of substance even if it is just one observation of something seemingly unsubstantial. You reach a conclusion fast. Write a postcard and it will help you write beyond the space allotted. And your receiver 
will possess something from you made just for them. David Masello began his career as a nonfiction book editor at Simon & Schuster, then went on to hold senior editorial positions at many magazines, including Travel and Leisure, Art and Antiques, and Town and Country. He's currently executive editor of Milieu, a magazine about design. David's a widely published essayist and poet, with pieces appearing in the New York Times, Best American Essays, and numerous literary and art magazines. He's the author of two books about art and architecture. Between the Lines is a regular feature of our show where writers of all genres can contribute their thoughts on writing and the writing life. For details, click the Submissions tab on our website, read650.org, and review the open submission calls for upcoming shows to see what inspires you. If you liked today's episode, please share it with someone in your life who you think will enjoy it too. And if you have a smart speaker, consider listening to the show while making dinner or doing chores around the house. That's our show for today. Thanks again to writers Corinne O'Shaughnessy, Sharon Foreman, and David Masello. For more Read 650, follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or LinkedIn. And thank you so much for listening today and for helping to spread the word about the spoken word. I'm Ed McCann, and this is Read 650.